Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for returning week after week to our radio show slash podcast. Thank you, especially for your prayers. If you're praying for us, if you're not, I would love to request prayers for our efforts here and for all of us, all our little difficulties and big difficulties, because you know that you, our listeners, are in our prayers. A wonderful partnership, (laughs) a prayer partnership between us and our listeners. There's a new movie that will be in theaters on September 18th and 19th that I was able to watch. It's called Route 60, The Biblical Highway, and it features former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He travels in the movie through the Holy Land, bringing the Bible alive in a geographical way. But first, we have a new book out by attorney John Birch. He works for the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and his book is called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Welcome to the show, John Birch. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. We're very honored to have you because here at Conversations with Consequences at the Catholic Association, we've been following for a long time all your wonderful work at the Alliance Defending Freedom, and you have argued some very important cases before the Supreme Court, and of course, uh, a case that, in, in my opinion, is probably the second most important case after Roe v. Wade as far as its cultural impact, and uh, that would be Obergefell. And you argued that case, and unfortunately, it went against us. And when I say us, I mean it went against our culture, our country, it went against our future, against our children. It just, we lost big when we lost same-sex marriage. So that must have been very a very big deal for you to be arguing that case in front of the Supreme Court. Well, it was an honor for me to be able to represent the church's teachings on the beauty of marriage between one man and one woman and God's plan for human flourishing. So I was really glad to be able to do that. As we were going into the argument that day, um, there were a lot of tea leaves that strongly suggested that the court was going to rule against us. We knew that Justice Kennedy was almost certainly going to be in a five justice majority to recognize a right to same-sex marriage that doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution or the history of our country. They just made it up. They just one little note on that. Um, 30 years before Obergefell was argued, there was another same-sex marriage case out of the Minnesota Supreme Court. And in that case, the Supreme Court unanimously refused to take the case. And in the order, they put, uh, for lack of federal jurisdiction, which meant that all nine justices agreed that because the Constitution was silent about the definition of marriage, that it was left to the states and the federal courts had nothing to say about it. So that's how much things changed in in 30 years. But notwithstanding the fact that we we knew what was going to happen, um, it was an honor to go in and to stand up for the truth. It was important to make a historical record. And as a culture, we need to continue talking about the issue and educating, um, especially Catholics, but then eventually non-Catholics as well, as to God's plan for marriage. And maybe someday, 
today, the pendulum will swing back and we'll have a chance to overturn Obergefell. One, one thing that was really notable about the case, after I was done arguing, come out of the doors of the courthouse and there's all kinds of people outside and the television cameras and all that. And almost everybody there was on the other side of the issue. Uh, the only people who were there on our side of the issue uh, were those who were saying that all gays go to hell and you know terrible things like that. And that was the only thing to contrast with the love is love message that the other side was promoting. And so it was really a sign that culturally, as a church, we have lost uh, the marriage debate. But time goes on for a long time. And with Jesus, everything is possible. Um, I, I have to believe that there was a reason for Roe. And one of those was the great Catholic movement, including all the apostolates that stood up to fight for life in the last 50 years and made Dobbs possible. And really, Obergefell can be a defining moment for the church with respect to marriage as well. We just need to be more courageous and to speak lovingly about the issue. That's a beautiful, hopeful uh, review of something that, that is so complicated for all of us and I think you're you're completely right we as Catholics as Christians we weren't prepared for same-sex marriage we didn't have the language to express ourselves we didn't have we hadn't laid the groundwork right to exactly. for that for the onslaught of love is love of course love is love but marriage isn't everything you know marriage is its own particular thing and we just didn't have the words you had the words and I'm sorry that the justices now Justice Alito wrote a very beautiful dissent and it's not in front of you, but I remember he made out, I think very well, what was going to happen in the future that people like us who understand marriage to be what marriage is, which is the lifelong, exclusive, sacramental connection between a man and his wife that is fruitful. And let me not forget any of the elements that he said that believing that was going to put us in a, in a dangerous minority. I think his words have come to, to pass. Oh, there's no question that his words have come true. I mean, it's to the point now where if you stand up in any kind of a public forum and express the truth about God's plan for marriage, you'll be immediately condemned as hateful and bigoted and a discriminator and, and terrible things like that. Um, and, and it was really that experience that motivated me to write this book about the church and gender ideology, because sure. things are moving very, very fast, but there's still time for us to get that language and to be able to talk to people about it. And so I wanted to create a resource that everyday Catholics, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a scientist, you don't have to be a lawyer, everyday Catholics could pick this up and start to get the, the words that they needed to be able to talk about gender ideology to their kids, their extended family, their neighbors, their friends, their co-employees, uh, because it's not too late for us to turn the culture's mind on the church's beautiful teachings about human sexuality as well. Are you drawing a direct line between your experiences with Obergefell and everything that happened then to your writing of this book? Is there a direct line uh, in your head and in your heart? Th there is a direct line in my head and my heart. And I think there's a direct line culturally too, because those who push a gender ideology agenda we're getting ready for Obergefell. Um, as I mentioned, we pretty much knew how it was going to turn out. And so as soon as the decision was released, they were ready to immediately pivot to the transgender issues. Uh, and you may not remember this, but back in 2015, uh, within a week or two after the decision had come out, uh, they were already putting Bruce Jenner on the cover of magazines and on all the TV talk shows to talk about his transition to the woman, Caitlyn Jenner. And already at that point, um, there was the TV show, I, I am Jade, you know, oh, yeah. again, about the, the boy who was transitioning jazz. to be a girl. Jazz. Or jazz, yeah, jazz, jazz, yes. 
Uh, poor, that, poor jazz. Was, Things have gone yes, really bad exactly. for jazz. Um, so, you know, there was a TV show and there were children's books. And, and so the progressive movement, which is trying to destroy the American family, was immediately ready to take Obergefell as its launching pad for a push towards gender activism. And that's where we find ourselves today. And, and yet, even even now, I, don't, I think most people can't draw that line, that immediate next step, right? That whole thing of same-sex marriage doesn't really connect to the, the lunacy of saying... A little boy can become a young woman instead of going through puberty <laughs> properly and becoming yeah. a young man. I think the connection is the first chapter of your book, which is what is truth. Uh, do you agree? And how does uh, understanding truth properly ground us? I, I think that's a huge part of it. We understand as Catholics that there is an objective truth, that all of God's creation has truth imprinted on it, and that we can discern and discover that truth through the use of our intellect and reason. And that's something that the church has done for 2000 years. But there's a, a growing movement um, in the world, but particularly in our young people. If you look at those college age and younger, uh, where more than 90% of them adopt moral relativism as their worldview. And Pope Benedict, uh, many years ago, was asked what the greatest danger facing the world is today. And he didn't say abortion. He didn't say same-sex marriage. He didn't say loss and belief in the true presence of the Eucharist. He said it was moral relativism. And the problem is that that view, which is that what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, has no roots in objective truth. And so everything becomes a matter of a opinion. And we can't even have serious conversations about God's plan for marriage or about God's plan for the human body and human sexuality or about abortion or about assisted suicide or, or anything else, because everything is just a matter of opinion. It's like my favorite type of cookie or my favorite type of ice cream. And people like moral relativism because it seems non-judgmental. So if someone else believes in abortion all the way through nine months of pregnancy, we can hold true to our Catholic belief, but we don't have to criticize them or speak up to them because they can have their own truth. And what people don't realize is that moral relativism is abandoning God. It's abandoning his truth in the world. And if you can't have serious conversations about things like mutilating the bodies of our young people because they have a gender identity that they think is different than their sex, then there's really nothing left for us to even talk about in our human relationships anymore. So it, it's critical that we talk within our families, especially, but also our Catholic parishes and our schools about the objective truth that exists and how the church is on a mission to help us find and discover that so that we can live according to God's truth, not according to our own opinion. When people talk about truth, they tend to think about facts, right? Uh, certain things are true or they aren't true. Statistics have shown this or statistics have shown that. Not that there's anything less truthful than statistics, if you ask me as a physician. <laughs> I know that they can be mixed up however you like. And we're starting to see that people are starting to disagree about things that are facts, right? Or like even very basic scientific facts. But people really get upset when you talk about moral truths. How is it as, as Catholics that, that, how can we bring into the general conversation the idea of moral truths and, and how these can be universal and applicable all the way across the world? Well, when I'm talking to young people, the way I address it is to talk to them about cars and about car manuals. Okay. So in everybody's glove compartment box or, or maybe on the internet, if you don't have the book anymore, uh, there's a manual and it was made by the same people who created your car. And that manual is not a, a series of things to oppress you or to make you feel guilty or 
or bad about yourself. It's instructions about how to best care for this car so that it'll operate in the way that the maker intended. And we all have the choice. We have the free will to follow that manual or not. We can choose to get the oil changed and the tires rotated and the filters changed and all those sorts of things. Uh, but if we choose not to do that, then what will happen? Well, over time, the car will break down and eventually it'll stop working altogether and it won't be able to work to the best of its ability the way its maker intended. And the moral truths that the church provides for us, um, you know, from the apostles and from the Bible um, and from sacred tradition, um, work the same way. They're not a series of no's. They're not meant to oppress us or to confine our freedom. In fact, they liberate us because when we follow those moral truths, it allows us to be the best possible people that we can be, the creatures that God created us to be. And so when you look at it that way, moral truths are a very beautiful way to liberate us. And when you think about freedom, our modern culture really has freedom backwards. We think about freedom being the freedom to do everything that we want. Um, and that's not really true freedom at all. True freedom is to be able to choose to do what is good and what is right. And again, there's a great analogy that I use with young people about basketball. If you take someone like Michael Jordan or LeBron James, you know, they're the greatest basketball players that ever lived, but they had to play the game within rules in order for us to know that they were great. If there were no rules in basketball, then someone who was bigger than LeBron would just be able to tackle him, you know, or, or they would double dribble or go out of bounds and come back in again. It's because of the rules that gave him the freedom to be the best possible basketball player he could be. And the church's moral truths in the same way give us the freedom to be the best possible people that we can be. So the moral truths are sort of enabling principles, right? They enable us to yes. live uh, they enable us to live with ourselves in a way that not just promotes our flourishing but makes it possible and also to live with others in a way that that is conducive to peace and to to harmony and and to a society that actually works right exactly um, and, and without them we, we don't have any guideposts and things quickly break down and then we can't have meaningful loving relationships with our neighbors and with our family members uh, we, we need those rules and as you know the way that we get good at following those rules is by practicing virtue um, and and virtue is just a, a topic that we don't talk about nearly enough with our, our young people, but it's those series of habits that make it completely natural, almost unthinking, where we can choose to do the right thing in accordance with moral truths because we have trained ourselves to follow virtues, to be virtuous people, to be uh, patient, to be courageous, to act justly, and all those things uh, that help us to live the moral truths easily and happily. I feel like now in our, in our culture, in our time, we're starting to see the great unraveling of what it really means when we abandon the these enabling principles of, uh, about being human. And some of the things we're seeing are attacks on children. And obviously people all over the United States, all over the world are are waking up suddenly to gender ideology because it has come to the children. Do you think that that's a, that's a big step in the evolution of, of the ideology, uh, the, the kind of step that will enable us to pull the curtain back and for everyone to see? Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, th this all started long ago, but really came to the fore, as I mentioned, in 2015, shortly after Obergefell. And at, at first, they came for our privacy spaces. Boys who identified as girls were being given access to showers and locker rooms um, at high schools and colleges around the country. And people didn't really stand up for that. And then they started to take women's athletic achievements. We, we represented ADF, the, the four young women in Connecticut, oh, where right. two boys identifying as girls won 15 state track and field championships that would have gone to girls and they lost those. Then we started to And to that's not women's... inconsequential. That's Those are our scholarships. Those are opportunities for life for Absolutely. these young women. Yeah. Life trajectory some... type things. But, but, but even in the face of that, you know, there wasn't a huge outcry. Some people have spoken up about it and, and that seems to be getting some traction. You know, but, but after 
after that, then they started um, compelling pronouns in the workplace, especially public employers, but private ones too. Um, you know, and again, people didn't really speak out. And it wasn't until uh, this past summer where we started to really see the policies in the schools where they were transitioning kids, but hiding it from parents, the Bud Light fiasco where they used the transgender spokesperson, and then the LGBT Pride Month um, articles at Target, you know, which included kids swimsuits, which were for um, transgender or, or into your local library for the drag the queen story hours. And, and so I feel like it was only this summer where people really started to wake up and start to speak out. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but even now, you know, there are curricula in many states, California is kind of a leader in this, where they're teaching kids in kindergarten, first grade uh, to think about how they feel. Do you feel like a boy or a girl or both or neither or some combination thereof and asking them to profess their gender identity. And in states like California, you can lose your child if you don't acquiesce to their request for a gender transition. They consider that abuse and neglect. And, and so we're starting to wake up, but we need a much bigger cultural tidal wave to stand up. And it needs to be led by the, the Catholic Church, first and foremost, uh, if we're actually going to turn the tide on this. You have a chapter in your book on detransitioners, and yes. it's excellent. It's an excellent chapter. We recently had Chloe Cole on our show a couple months ago. Yes. Of all the interviews I've ever done, that's one of my favorites because she was, Chloe Cole is a, a young woman, I think she's 19 now, who had a mastectomy at the age of 15 or 16 and drawn down that horrible path and is now detransitioned, as they say. She's presenting as a woman again, and but she's suffered tremendously and she's very, so vulnerable uh, the way she speaks. And she just, she, she floors me with her courage because to, at that age, I just wanted to be like everyone else and, <laughs> and go to the right parties, you know, and she's, she's out there being a light to others. What do you think the detransitioner movement is doing for us? I think it's hugely helpful if we'll only listen to what they have to say, uh, because what you're hearing from them is that they were rushed into really horrible medical processes that deform their bodies permanently. You know, once you have your breasts removed, you can't ever reconstruct them in a way that will ever allow a mother to, to nurse her child again. Or even uh, have an aesthetically pleasing appearance. You'll always be scarred. Exactly. You, you will. You know, and often there are issues of permanent infertility. Um, when they're doing it with adolescents and teenagers, there are um, stunted. Uh, development issues having to do with bone structure, muscular structure, brain development, baldness, all those things that are permanently. Baldness for yes, girls. Baldness. That, that, that concerns me as, <laughs> tremendously. <laughs> That's because I'm a woman. <laughs> yes. So, so we, we hear about all those things. And, and we also hear from them that they weren't informed that there was another path, you know, and, and that's one of the things that haunted me as I was writing the book um, that I hope every Catholic can understand to motivate them to have courage to speak about this issue, at least within their families, if not publicly, because to hear someone like, like Chloe say, you know, why didn't anyone ever tell me that this was dangerous and that I could have gone to therapy and worked on my, my mental health issues without going through all these horrible procedures? Why didn't anyone tell me? Well, my, my hope is that no one will ever go through this again without knowing that there's another side to the story without knowing that in adults, those who fully transition, suicide rates go up, the mental health issues increase. Um, you have all kinds of other long-term health issues, including heart problems and other things. Now, our, our kids need to know that. They need to know that um, it's not unnatural for an adolescent or a teenager going through puberty to feel uncomfortable in their body, to be fearful, to be anxious, to be stressed, to have difficulty I would guess making relationships. I would guess it's 100% of us, right? Adolescent was it, hard. It, Adolescence was very person. hard on me. And I'm 
never talked to anyone who thought it was a walk in the park. No, every person I've ever discussed it with has said that it's difficult. But there are many, many, many alternatives to taking life-altering puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and then undergoing surgery. And so we need to tell people so that there's not more Chloe's. Your book is called Loving God's Children. And I think that's the perfect title, especially for Catholics, in my opinion, because as Catholics, okay, I'll tell you a story. This morning, I was leaving Mass, and a friend approached me, and she wanted to talk about how a very, very close friend of their families has uh, an autistic son who's now 16 or 17, but has decided that he should be a, a woman, a girl. And she and, and her husband have decided that that's not someone that her younger, her sons should be interacting with because they're at delicate ages, right? 10, 11, 12. Mm -hmm. This friend who's doing the best she can for her son, I believe she is doing the best she can, feels that this couple doesn't love her anymore, that they they are rejecting her out of a lack of charity, that they're rejecting her son out of, out of a lack of charity. And I think all people of good hearts, we want to be charitable. We want to be loving. We want to be accepting and, and hospitable to everyone. Right. How do we love God's children how do we love our friends? How do we love our family members and still help them through this terrible time? I'm so glad you asked me that because there is a huge misunderstanding about what love is. And that's something we talk about in the book. Uh, that Through the movies and television shows and novels and things like that, uh, the modern conception of love is that it's just a feeling. You know, you're, you're kind of warm and tingly or sentimental. Um, and it's not recognized as a choice, something that you intentionally do. Um, but the Catholic Church defines love for us very, very differently. The Catechism states that love is willing the best for another person. And, and there's a simple example that I like to use um, because parents understand this intuitively. If your child it walks into the kitchen and they really, really want to touch the hot stove, they say, you know, that's what I want. It'll make me happy. No parent in their right mind would ever give in to that because they want what's best for their child and they understand an objective truth that their child does not, that if they touch the hot stove, they're going to get burned and be seriously hurt. And so to love them, they don't give into what they want. They don't give into what they're asking for. They don't give into the child's desires. Instead, they act in a way that's best for them. And so when we think about loving God's children in the context of gender ideology, it never means giving into something that we know will result in long-term hardship and pain and disfigurement and potentially increased risks of suicide. That, that's not loving. Uh, to love them, to will what's best for them, is to accompany them, uh, to walk that journey with them, to help address the underlying causes of the mental anxiety that might be causing the dysphoria or the choice to become uh, transgender. I know there's a, a statistic that among the, the kids who are genuinely gender dysphoric, and, and we have to separate them from kind of the cultural phenomenon because there is a, a contagion, you know, where a dozen girls in a class will all declare themselves to be transgender at the same time. And that's that's different than someone who's been clinically diagnosed with gender dysphoria. That's a real thing and they're suffering a lot. So among the, the dysphoric group, they estimate that 60% of them suffered some kind of childhood sexual abuse or other trauma. Um, sometimes it's a broken relationship with a mother or father. Sometimes it's a relative, you know, who maybe dressed them up as the opposite sex because they always wanted a granddaughter instead of a grand son. It could be lots of different things. But if we want to truly love them, we need to get to the root of what is causing the dysphoria and accompany them through that to express themselves truly as the sex that they are while dealing with these other issues that are on the side. And it's really unfortunate in the autistic community because they're particularly vulnerable to the social media and peer pressure with respect to gender ideology because they can sense that there's something that's not 
quite the same with them as it is with everybody else. And they can see that their relationships with others maybe don't go the way that they want them to. And so now they're being offered this quick fix on a silver platter that will remarkably solve all these problems. And, and so we need to accompany them too and help them understand that this is going to hurt them and not help them and, and help to find other ways to make those relationships stronger, to help them have genuine friendships and, and things like that. And that's how we truly love. It's not by giving into someone's desires or wants that will ultimately hurt them. Let me ask you, what do you say to people who say, well, all this gender ideology has to be kept away from children because they're too young to make their own minds up. And obviously they have no wisdom or experience or foresight <laughs> at 11 or 12 or 13, but it's okay. Whatever, whatever a consenting adult over 18 wants to do. What's the answer to that? Why is, why is that well, not true? If we want to truly love them, then we need to speak the truth to them about what's best for them. And you can think about other dysphorias, you know, mental health issues that are similar to gender ideology that we would never think about that way. So for example, anorexia, that's where someone feels that their body is too fat, when in reality, that's not true. They're probably too thin already. And we would never say, well, because that person is a consenting adult, um, I'll encourage them to eat less or to have liposuction or to do something else that will result in them losing more weight because that will make them sick. And ultimately they could die from that. That would not be loving at all. There isn't any other context where we see someone in, uh, engaging and conduct, which we know to be bad for them. And we say, oh, because they're a consenting adult, that's just fine. Um, so we, we, we need to persuade those Catholics that the age of consent is not a reason to abandon talking about this issue. Tell Thank our you. listeners, uh, your book, Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology, where they, uh, when will it come out and where can they access it? It was just released on August ah, 15th, the okay. Feast of the Assumption, which was the best possible release date that uh, they could have chosen. The publisher is Sophia Institute Press, and you can find the book at all of the, the major book retailers. Uh, but we prefer if you go to the Sophia Institute Press website, because then the proceeds will go towards a Catholic publishing company, which does wonderful work publishing Catholic classics, old and new, and not to some of these other mass book sellers who will use that money to promote the opposite type of book and continue to That's promote true. gender ideology. If you go on Amazon and, and you look for gender ideology books, uh, for every one like mine, you'll probably find 50 that are, are talking about it on the other side. It's just so pervasive. I mean, and you one, won't, one and you won't find about, you won't find some like uh, Ryan Anderson's are just not on the site, right? That his was banned. Uh, right. it, it was on it was on Amazon for years. And then um, when Congress was about to undertake a bill that would have amended all of our federal laws to give gender ident identity and sexual orientation protection with no religious accommodations across every federal statute, just days before the debate started, they removed it from the platform and said that it was discriminatory and hateful based on its its writings, which are, are very loving and thoughtful. I know you know Ryan and, and how beautifully he talks about yeah. all kinds of subjects that are important to the church. Uh, but, but Amazon banned it, and so you still can't get it there. And, and, and when I think about popular culture, too, it's just so dangerous. Um, you know, Blues Clues is a show for three and four-year-olds. It's one that our kids watched when, when they were really little. Uh, it teaches lessons about caring and sharing and, and things like that. But last year, if you had stepped away to do the laundry or to take a short nap while your kid watched Blue's Clues, your three-year-old was exposed to a pride parade. Uh, it was sung by a, a cross-dressing man uh, who has a, a drag queen show. And each float celebrated some aspect of LGBT pride. 
And one of them was a float of beavers. And one of the the kid beavers on that float had pieces of tape across her her chest. And it's because she had had a breast removal surgery. And and, and it's just one of many examples of the way that the mass media and social media, too, is trying to infect our kids with this ideology. And so we, we need to understand the church's teaching. We need to understand the science. We need to know the dangers of um, you know, using preferred pronouns and encouraging kids to in- embrace a gender identity that's different than their sex. But the short answer to your question, uh, go, go to the Sophia Institute Press website and, uh, and buy the book, read it and promote it to everyone that you know. This is something as a church that is desperately needed for us to be brave in this culture. Well, thank you, John Birch of the ADF of the Alliance Defending Freedom. And the book is Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Gail. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Route 60, (laughs) The Biblical Highway. I want to hear all about the movie, but I just wanted to say right off the top that lately I've been more and more interested in salvation history. And in that sense, what I comprehend is that that God had this, has this plan for us to, to save us. And it starts very, very, very far back through the Jewish people. And if we yes. do not deepen our understanding of the way that he implemented his plan through them, up through the birth of our Lord, then we right. are really missing like half the half the story and our yep. own part that we concentrate on, which starts with the birth of our Lord, then we are missing so much of the subtleties and, and so much of God's plan, basically. So I wonder if you feel the same. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because salvation history, so many people don't understand that there's the whole Bible, a lot of people say, well, I'm a New Testament person or whatever, and they only concentrate on the Gospels or just the New Testament. But they're missing, like you said, half of the story because I, we our roots are in Judaism. And, uh, you know, and it started, you know, thousands of years ago, three, four thousand years ago with Abraham. And then we have to get and a lot of things we do as Catholics now are rooted in that as well. You know, things like at the mass that we do, the altar and processing down the aisle and using incense and all these things they come from Judaism and also our Jewish roots. And so we need to go back and see that. And I love typology. Um, for those listening that don't know what typology is, it's a, a study of places, persons, and things in the Old Testament that foreshadow things in the New Testament. And so really, when you know both of the Old and the New, you see that the whole Bible is about Jesus, the prophecies about Him, the foreshadowing things about Him. For instance, you know, with the Eucharist or the Passover, when they took the blood of the Lamb and smeared it on the doorpost to you know, to be saved when the the angel passed over. Well, this foreshadows our Lord's blood saving us. He was the, he's a spotless lamb. And like John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God. And what we say in mass, you know, behold the lamb of God. He saves us. And that's what the lamb, the spotless lamb in the Old Testament did, save the people by its blood. So that's a foreshadowing of Jesus, you know, shedding his blood for us to save us. And there's so much of that in scripture. And that's God's plan for us, like you said, salvation history. And so this movie is um, a great movie to see because they explore the Old Testament places as well as the New Testament places. And it's very interesting. So what is Route 60 or Route 60 referred to? What exactly? 
It's a, it sounds like a roadway. What does it mean? Actually, you know, it's a, it's far more than just a two-lane highway. It's a historic, sacred link to the roots of Judaism and Christianity. And it's, you know, the stories of the Old and New Testament. It's actually, you know, like I think it's a 145-mile strip. And it goes from, in this movie, it goes from, I think it's 146 miles to be sure. It goes from Nazareth, which, by the way, is now Israel's largest Arab city. You know, in, in the Bible, it's just a small village. Village, but now it's their largest um, city, Arab city. And now this route, you know, this highway, you know, runs through Jerusalem and it ends in Beersheba, you know, which is now one of Israel's most, you know, high-tech centers. And it runs north to south. So Route 60 connects ancient Israel with modern Israel. And it also connects Jews and Christians with Muslims and Israelis with Palestinians. Along that route, it's the same road that the patriarchs, you know, Abraham and David and Isaac and and also Jesus and Mary and the apostles all were on this road. They all walked on this road, traveled on this road. But now, you know, it's covered with concrete and asphalt and they call it, you know, Route 60, uh, the biblical highway, because all along that road is what happened thousands of years ago. And it's just covered and modernized now, but it's the same road that all these people in ancient times were traveling on. And it's fascinating. Let me ask you, Gil, why should we care about the things that are particular to that time and place? Because sometimes I think we tend to think of Christianity, our, our own religion, as this universal religion that can be applied everywhere to everyone, and that's exactly what it is. I'm, I don't mean to say that it's not true, but mm-hmm. but but the, a movie like this and visiting uh, the Holy Land and things like that, they they. They almost flip that on its head and say, no, the particularities of this time and this place uh, and this this uh, dry air around you and, and the shape of the hills, those particularities also matter. Does that, yeah. what do you think of that? When you study Bible, I'm a, I'm a Bible study teacher. And when you study the Bible, it really comes alive when you go there and you actually walk in the same places that these people walk and you actually see what happened. And it's like, it's like reading a book maybe and then seeing the movie and seeing seeing it played out and seeing the color and the and the structures and seeing what it looks like in person rather than trying to imagine it in your head. And so it's wonderful to go and actually know that you're standing in the same spots that that these people in the scriptures, that our Lord, our God, our Savior, our Creator was there. And it's just fascinating. And I think it's so important to explore these things because, like I said, it, the Bible comes alive. The Word of God comes alive when you go to Israel and to the Holy Land and go to these places. You know, when as a Catholic, I've been to the Holy Land twice in Israel and um, on pilgrimages. And when we go as Catholics on a pilgrimage, we see sites, you know, we see where Jesus was born. We see where he lived in Nazareth. We see, you know, where he performed certain miracles. We see where he preached. We see Peter's house, you know, his apostle. We see where he was crucified and where he died and where he ascended, all those places. But we don't see these places that are shown in this movie, like we had talked about before, that are the roots of this history, you know, where it all began. And and like you said, that was just, you know, we need to know the full story. And it's kind of sad that, you know, when we go on a pilgrimage as a Catholic, that we don't see those sites. So I was really intrigued by seeing these sites in the movie. And, you know, if I go back to Israel again, I would, my husband has never been, I would love for us to go and see these sites in person like we did in the movie, because I was 
wasn't. We never saw them. I didn't even think about them at the time, which is crazy. But, you know, you only have so much time anyway. But it's great that they show them in this movie. And it's wonderful to see these places. I've also been to Israel twice on pilgrimage. And I want to ask you about those Mm -hmm. sites. What in particular uh, moved you about them? I I also wanted to mention that one thing that struck me when I was in Israel, I I live in Miami. I live in the the subtropics and and, in a place that's very lush and very, you throw something on the ground and it grows, right? Because it's all very, the soil is very, is full of nutrition and the, right. everything, everything in our, in, in my environment tends to, to beauty and growth. And then you go to Israel and it's, it's, it's a harsh land surrounded by desert mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it has to be seen to be believed, right? The heat and the, and right. the dryness and the, how rocky it is. Well, and it's like, it's against human life. Like it's a place where it's very hard to be a person and a human and, and rest like you're living from that place. And then, and it struck me very much that that's exactly where God chose to yeah. reveal himself to to start the arc of salvation history and then to be born as a as a person amongst a human person amongst the rest of us so why that in a so small that village place, in a in a place that like you said it's not it's not a beautiful place at least a, a lot of the sections where we go to see the sites where Jesus was you know i wouldn't say they're beautiful um a lot of them but they're certainly sacred and wonderful to be there and like to see like when you them. like and you hear in the the promised land the promised land and then you see it finally in person mm-hmm. and you're like oh this is the promised land I was expecting something more like Bali or <laughs> something right. spectacularly yeah. beautiful, and it's just not. But it made me think of how how humble our Lord is, and also right that he exactly that he it's that like, he put himself there and not somewhere fabulous. Exactly, to, and it's, it's like um you know our Blessed Mother with her apparitions. She appears to children and these small remote villages that nobody's ever heard of. Usually, you know, and but you know we think, well, why didn't God appear to you know the king or the president or somebody, you know, or the Blessed Mother do that. But no, he's humble and he's, you know, born in a manger in an animal shelter. Yeah, like hidden, humble, poor, uh, out of the way, not beautiful, not, not welcoming, not hospitable, not easy. Exactly. And Nazareth, his hometown, I mean, Nathaniel said when when he was told about Jesus, he said, what can what good comes from Nazareth? I mean, at the time in Jesus time, Nazareth was just a small village with about 150 people. And now it's the largest Arab city in, you know, in the Middle East. But. At that time, it was just a little village, and it was, uh, you know, wasn't much to speak of, and just about 150 people, and that was the way he came into the world. It's hard to understand, but at the same time, he wants us to be humble. You know, he said the first will be last, and the last will be first, and so he's teaching us. And, you know, maybe that's a very good, that's very hopeful when we see our lives uh, of obscurity, right? We live lives of obscurity. No one, most of us aren't famous or making huge dents in the world. (laughs) We're just living, trying to be good daughters of God and sons of God. So how, what a beautiful thing, no, to, to focus on. Let me ask you, Gail, the two the two men who are taking us on this journey in the movie, uh, Route 60, the, the biblical highway, are yeah. Mike Mike Pompeo and David Friedman. Now everyone knows mm-hmm. who Mike Pompeo is, and yeah. and he's just charming in the movie, and obviously so yeah. so knowledgeable and so he's you know what what the words that he's speaking come from his heart. You can see that he's right. a person who's who's imbibed the Bible and and yeah. understands its its significance and its and its grandeur. Tell us about David Friedman. Okay, well David Friedman, you know he was the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, and he also was a Nobel Prize um, nominee and. 
and a national security um, medal recipient, uh, you know, for his efforts in helping secure the historic Abraham Accords, you know, and trying to, you know, restore peace in the Middle East, which is we've been trying to do for years and years. But he also, um, both of them are best-selling authors. And I thought it was interesting, you know, that Mike Pompeo is a Christian and David Friedman is a a Jew, and they come together to take us on this journey down this biblical road, you know, where all the ancient people in the Bible were. And it's wonderful that they they get along so well and that they respect each other, their religions, and they, you know, I think it's traveling along this ancient road that both the, the Old Testament patriarchs and like Abraham and all, it's wonderful because one of them can tell about the, David Friedman can tell about the Old Testament patriarchs and people there where, and take us to those sites. Whereas Mike Pompeo, the Christian, is, you know, talking about the sites and that relate to Jesus. And so it's really interesting that the two of them came together and they both worked together under the Trump administration to try to bring about peace in this area. And, I they, think were, it's and they were successful. That, that, yeah, was a, that was a, a very positive time in, 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 in Israeli history and also yeah. of Israeli-American cooperation and understanding. Right. And, the, and then Trump, you know, made Jerusalem the, the, um, the embassy there, put it there where many, many presidents before him had promised to do it. But then they got, you know, threatened and everybody saying, no, you can't do it. It's going to cause war and all this stuff. And they didn't follow through. And um, I remember Trump said, well, I just took my phones off the hook and didn't listen and went ahead and did it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And it was wonderful. Everybody loved it. And it didn't come out the way that they had said, you know, oh, this is going to be terrible and all wars. And it, that didn't happen. It was celebrated. Yeah, I remember that. That was spectacular because um, yes. as, you know, as Christians, we think of ourselves, I think rightly, we think of the Jews as our elder brothers. And we do, we sympathize very much with, with, their, with their presence in the Holy Land. Right, um, exactly. I mean, God gave them, you know, the, the Jerusalem as the, you know, the city, the, the city of peace is what Jerusalem means. And he gave it to them. And, you know, for it to be taken away from them was very traumatic. And so, and for them to get it back means a lot, you know, especially in the setting of the Holocaust. Yeah, in that in that very, in that time when we understood that to be Jewish was to be in in, in danger of being exterminated. I mean, we had yes. just watched it happen. Um, right. Is 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 the movie Routes Route sixty? Um, does it? Do you think it fosters uh, a sense of, of, of the, a good sense of the Israeli state and its importance in the world? Absolutely, I do, because, um, you know, you probably remember one part in the movie where you see the Israelis um, with uh, some Israeli men uh, um, with their children on their backs, you know, dancing. And um, mm -hmm. at the same time, they've got AK-15 rifles, you know, because this shows, just like it is here in the United States now, we have um, almost like two countries countries with the red and the blue states, you know, mm -hmm. um, also such a division. And there, you know, you do as well. And uh, you have, you know, the secular Jews and, and all that are just don't think about their past and their history and all that goes with it. And, you know, maybe not even care about God. But then you have the devout Jews that, you know, they, they are so, um, 
they're so enraptured with their country, you know, the roots of it, their their history. And these men are dancing with their children and celebrating and all. But at the same time, they have these rifles with them, you know, ready to defend their country because it means so much to them because because of their their ancient roots and, and God that they're, you know, devout Jews. And so that was an interesting interesting point in the movie, I thought, just to see that. It can be, uh, I think it's a very good point for, for us as Americans to, to internalize, yeah. right? That exactly. there has been, we've had, we've lost so much of, of our, our gratefulness and our reverence for our, for our forefathers who, right. who brought forth upon this land, um, the best nation ever <laughs> to ever yeah. exist in the history of mankind. And our young people are not being fostered in that gratefulness and in that, in that respect and honor. That's right. They've been indoctrinated to almost hate our country and and to fight against it. And, you know, these things like pulling down historical um, monuments and all and destroying our history is so sad. And, of course, the worst thing is they've thrown God out of the schools, out of, you know, government. And that's why we're in the problems, having the problems we have today is because people are not believing in God anymore. And they, they've thrown him out of every place. And we need to bring God back. And we this is another reason why it's so important to see a movie like this. For those people that don't believe in God or don't know scripture or something, for them to go and see this. I hope people will bring their friends and relatives that are in that, you know, state to, you know, to see and and try to, you know, get them interested in their Christian or their Jewish history and come back to God. Oh, I think I, it's very important. I couldn't agree more, Gail. And um, I'm sorry to say our time is up, but please, before oh, we go, tell our sure. listeners where they can, how and when they can watch Route 60, The Biblical Highway. Yes, Route 60 will be premiering exclusively in theaters for just two nights only on September the the 18th and 19th. And to find out more about it, they can go to route60.movie. That's root, R-O-U-T-E, the number 60.movie. And they can also purchase the tickets there. Oh, wonderful, Gail. And, and, and to all our listeners, I highly recommend Route 60, The Biblical yeah. Highway. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. In it, he's going to ask us the same two momentous questions he asked the apostles 2,000 years ago in Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? These get to Jesus' real identity. Who is Jesus? And who is he in my life? In response to that first question, the apostles said that their informal poll showed that the people were numbering Jesus among the greatest figures past and present in Jewish history. Some, like the murderous Herod Antipas, who had decapitated the Lord's precursor, were saying Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others were claiming he was Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, the one whose return they believed would set the stage for the Messianic age. Others said he was Jeremiah, the one whom they believed had hidden the ark and the altar of the sacrifice before the destruction of the temple, and the one they anticipated would return to reinstitute true worship. At the time Jesus asked the question, many of the Jews were accustomed to say that there hadn't been prophets for 400 years. And therefore, whoever Jesus was, the crowds believed that he was likely the greatest figure in four centuries. But as exalted as those estimations of Jesus' reputation were, they weren't even close. We can hear similar things today about Jesus. 
Many, including Christians, say that Jesus was a very good man, compassionate, kind, who encouraged people to love, imparted a peaceful philosophy, or even was the holiest guy who ever lived. In short, they admired Jesus. But Jesus didn't take on a human nature and die on Calvary for people's approval. As C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, Jesus was either who he said he was, the Son of God made man, or a lunatic who mistakenly thought he was, or a fraud, and therefore one of the worst liars of all time. Merely a good man, he wasn't, and simply couldn't be. That's why Jesus' second question is so important. He asked his closest followers, who do you say that I am? It's clear that each of the apostles would have been grappling with the question of Jesus' identity. As they heard him preach, watched him heal the sick, cleanse lepers, exercise demons, multiply food, walk on water, and calm storms. But 11 of the 12 apostles stayed silent. They probably feared going on record even if every ounce of their being recognized that Jesus was someone beyond what the mob was murmuring. Nathaniel, in fact, the first time he met Jesus, cried out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, pointing both to Jesus' reality as the Son of David and the Son of the Eternal Father. But for whatever reason, he was too reticent to say in front of the others what he had said to Jesus directly. Peter, however, took that risk stood up and boldly replied that Jesus was far more than a great prophet, far more than the greatest figure in centuries, far more even than Moses. He was the Messiah in Hebrew, the Christ in Greek, the Anointed One in English, the long-awaited Savior whom the Jews had been expecting for a millennium. He was also, Peter said significantly, the Son of the living God, the God who is alive and gives and holds us in life. Peter made a great act of faith, a bold profession holding nothing back. One that Jesus noted, he couldn't have said all on his own. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, he replied. For flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Similarly, the only way we can confess Jesus to be Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, and Lord, is by a special grace of God the Father, reveals this wisdom to us by the same Holy Spirit by which he revealed it to Simon Peter. And like Simon Peter, We need not just receive, but respond to God's grace to confess Jesus in this way, to go out and give courageous witness that Jesus is the Savior and long desired of the nations. At the end of today's gospel, Jesus strictly ordered the apostles not to tell anyone he was the Messiah because he feared that they would classify him according to their own political messianic expectations instead of learn to accept Jesus on their own terms, on his own terms of mission. After the fulfillment of his mission with his passion, death, and resurrection, however, Jesus commanded and commissioned us to do the exact opposite, to go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. This proclamation we make of Jesus' true identity is not supposed to be some dry, factual declaration like a monotone, apathetic recitation of what we say in the creed. It's meant to be a proclamation of someone we know intimately, like we would identify a husband or a wife, son or daughter, brother or sister, or best friend, done with joyful words and witness. As Pope Francis wrote in his exhortation, Joy of the Gospel, it's not the same thing to have known Jesus as not to have known him. Not the same thing to walk with him as to walk blindly. Not the same thing to hear his word as not to know it. Not the same thing to contemplate him, worship him, find our peace in him as not to. With Jesus, life becomes richer, and that with him, it's easier to find meaning in everything. God the Father will give us the grace that exceeds what flesh and blood reveals, so that we too may proclaim Jesus' identity in the midst of the world, and how who he is grounds who we are. In the Sunday's consequential conversation, it's important that we also focus on Jesus' confession about Peter. Jesus says, for my part, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
We've heard the words of this gospel so many times that we can miss their true shock value. Jesus changed the name of Simon to Rock, Catholic Aramaic, Petra in Greek, and said that he was going to erect the continuance of his entire saving mission on him. It would have been easier and more fitting for him to have named him Sandy rather than Rocky because of all the times prior to Pentecost he betrayed Jesus. But Jesus knew what he was doing. The place where he made this confession is Caesarea Philippi, which I've had the privilege to visit many times in the Holy Land. It's in the north of Israel, very close to the Syrian border. There's a huge limestone mountain face where Philip the Tetrarch, one of Herod the Great's sons, the brother of Antipas and Archelaus, had built a temple to the pagan god of the wild and of sex, Pan, or Baal. There was a huge cave in the mountain face. It was considered at the time the gates of the netherworld, from which a powerful stream would mysteriously emanate and where people would worship God by committing acts of bestiality. For Jesus there to say that Simon was the rock was to emphasize how solid he would become after the descent of the Holy Ghost and how important would be his mission to strengthen his brothers. To promise that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church was to emphasize that the church would triumph over the pagan worship encountered there and elsewhere. To speak about the building of the church there is important because it's from there that the Jordan is born from that underground stream, a symbol of baptism by which people enter the church built by Christ on Peter. Jesus chose Simon Peter and gave him his own incredible authority, symbolized by the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the power to bind and loose in heaven and on earth. Jesus made Peter his vicar, his authoritative proxy, his definitive ambassador to act in his name. Having received those keys, Peter passed them down to his successors, right down to his 265th successor, Pope Francis. Sometimes the popes will be great saints. Sometimes they'll be pretty uninspiring men. A few occasions, they've actually been notorious sinners. But Christ has continued to choose men to be his living rock, to construct his church and the papacy, to give the pope his keys, and to send the Holy Spirit to help the pope particularly, to confess him, to feed and tend to the sheep he has entrusted to him, and to triumph with him over the gates of hell. That's why if we have faith in Jesus, we must also have faith in his confession and his institution of the papacy. When the Pope writes or says something applying God's revelation to the nitty-gritty situation of today's world, we should listen to what he's saying, especially when he's teaching definitively about something on faith and morals. Do we read papal encyclicals and exhortations by Pope Francis and his predecessors? Do we pay attention to the Angelus messages the Pope gives us each Sunday and as well as to his Wednesday catechesis? Do we have reverence for the Holy Father? Some Catholics in every age stand in judgment over the Pope evaluating what he says on the basis of their personal preferences, and often weigh what the Pope teaches is less valuable than their own or others' opinions about the way things ought to be. Sometimes they behave as if they believe they have a better grasp of God's ways than the successor of Peter, including on things we need to believe or do to please God and enter fully into his life. This approach doesn't take seriously what Jesus has done. Pope is infallible, of course, only when he teaches definitively about faith and morals and union with the deposit of faith to be held by people of all time. But that doesn't mean that the rest of what he says is the equivalent of an opinion column in a high school newspaper. To believe in Christ means to believe in what Christ did in instituting the papacy. To believe in the papacy means to reverence the Pope, pray for the Pope, and listen to the Pope with greater attentiveness than to any other human being. This Sunday is an opportunity for us to join Simon Peter and shout out with words and in life, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
and to order our life consistent with that confession, as Peter did. It's also a time for, join, for us to join Jesus in shouting out to Peter and all his successors. You are Peter, and on this rock, Christ has built his church. To pray for him, to build our life on him and his successors, whom Jesus has made the living rock. God bless you all. Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com. And make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers. Thank you.